This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Deliciously Ella podcast with me, Ella Mills. So some exciting news before we get into today's episode. Um, We've had loads of requests, actually, to get a gift card up on our web shop on deliciouslyella.com so you can gift things to friends and families. So that is up now. And we've got some amazing new additions in skincare and lifestyle to the brands we love, supporting amazing small brands and brilliant founders. So that's all gone live now just on www.deliciouslyella.com if you want to have a look. And today we have got one of, at least for me, I think the most interesting topics we've covered so far. And I'm sure we can all agree that, you know, this kind of desire to have a sort of perfect life, you know, the perfect career, the perfect relationship, the perfect children, the perfect Instagram ready life in general is sort of feeling like an increasingly big part of the world we live in today. And yet when we stop and think about it, there's something fundamentally wrong with it because no one is flawless. And no matter how we present ourselves, being perfect is also a completely subjective concept. And so it is, in fact, impossible. And really interestingly, there are increasing levels of research into this topic, which are showing that perfection isn't just actually impossible, but that it can also be really, really bad for our well-being, especially for our mental health. So that's what we're going to be diving into today. And today we're joined by Dr. Thomas Curran, a psychologist and professor at the LSE in London. And he specializes in this concept of perfectionism, how it develops, how it impacts on our mental health and the kind of different strands of perfectionism and and what they're studying and looking at today. So thank you so, so much for joining us. Welcome, Thomas. It's an absolute pleasure. Uh, Thanks for having me on. So you did this absolutely brilliant TED Talk, which is how I discovered your work. And it feels like a kind of increasingly important topic to talk about. And I guess just to point out the obvious of the fact that perfection doesn't exist. But you talk about the fact that there are three strands of perfectionism. And I wondered if we could start with what those three are and kind of what sits at the root of them and how they manifest. Sure. So perfectionism actually has a really long, long history of study. We've kind of arrived at three core components of perfectionism, what we think of the three main uh, components of perfectionism anyway, from many, many years of clinical observation and research study and talking to people about what perfectionism is and how it impacts them and where it comes from. And through that process, what we discovered is that there are multiple dimensions, multiple origins and multiple directions in which perfectionism can impact on people's lives. The first is, I guess, what resonates with us all when we think about perfectionism, and that's something called self-oriented perfectionism. That's kind of the perfectionism that kind of boils up from within. It's set high and excessive self-set goals and harsh self-criticism when we haven't met those high standards. But there's a social element to perfectionism too. So it's not just about 
what comes from within the perfections are directed from within us but it's also the perception that others expect us to be perfect and that there's excessive and lofty expectations in the social environment and that doesn't just have to be those who are close to us it could be just the generalized environment and the culture that we live in we perceive it to be excessive the standards in the, in the environment are excessive people expect a lot of us and they're they're very punitive i guess and judgmental and we haven't haven't met those standards and then the third and final one is other-oriented perfectionism and that's the strand of perfectionism that's projected onto others so that i expect you to be perfect i expect you to hold and live up to excessively high standards and when you haven't i'm punitive and critical and so those are the three main dimensions of perfectionism they all have different various different origins and, and consequences but but together they make up what we understand as as the perfectionism personality trait and you said that the socially prescribed perfectionism, that kind of sense that everyone expects you to be perfect, your data showed to be the most damaging. And I wondered if you could explain a bit more about that. Yes, socially prescribed perfectionism is is a, is a really p- pernicious form of perfectionism. As, as I suggested, it's this, it's this idea that, that there's a generalised sense that others and the and the environment around us expects us to be perfect and and that's irrespective of what's actually going on in the environment that's just a, a worldview that we carry around with us i guess it's a way of being in the world a way of existing in the world that we feel on a daily basis that there is excessive amounts of expectations that are weighing on us and that people's judgment uh, their validation, their approval are dependent upon us meeting those excessively high standards. And when we haven't, we feel like we've let people down. We feel a lot of humiliation, feel a lot of embarrassment, feel a lot of shame. Shame is a very pervasive characteristic among the socially prescribed perfectionists. And, and that's one of the reasons why it's particularly damaging, because even if we do live up to those excessively high standards that, that we feel are placed upon us, uh, we don't really feel satisfaction. We feel that the better we do, the better we're expected to do and you can imagine on a day-to-day basis that the internal dialogue moving around the world on a day-to-day basis is really 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 draining when we feel like those pressures and expectations are weighing on us and so there is a lot of negative uh, emotionality that is attached to it the key part i guess of the damage is the fact that it's a never-ending cycle you're sort of on a hamster wheel forever because it's impossible to constantly meet the kind of highest standards at every second of every day. For sure. And, that, and this is where the dimensions of perfection start to bleed into one another. So if you feel that your whole self-worth is bound up in the sense that you need to achieve high standards to receive other people's approval and to meet other people's expectations, then you're going to set yourself excessive standards because that's the only way you can guarantee yourself you're going to meet those pressures and those expectations. So you set those high goals, but unfortunately the goals are too high in the first place so you fail more often than not to meet them so you feel a lot of shame you feel a lot of embarrassment humiliation and just generalized sense of anxiety that that essentially we feel worthless we don't we haven't met those standards we feel like we're not good enough we feel that there's something wrong or defective about us so in order to compensate for that we then set even higher goals and of course because they're too high we, we fail to meet them again. And so that kind of negative cycle of self-defeat starts to set in. And that's actually one of the biggest reasons, A, why perfectionism is so damaging, that sort of negative cycle of self-defeat. But, but also it's one of the reasons why we think in particular the rising levels of perfectionism we've observed should really be forewarning and cause for concern. Yeah, so I wanted to pick up on that. I guess on, and in a way it sounds like a silly question, but 
but why is it damaging? What what are you kind of seeing? First of all, it'd be brilliant to understand a bit more of the stats around the rise in perfectionism and then why that is having such a negative impact. So what we've seen, and this this was a big, big study that we conducted about a year ago now, looking at essentially what's happening with levels of perfectionism. Because I I, I mean, we've all kind of seen what's happening in modern culture we feel like there's something in the water and this is something that i was certainly seeing among the young people that i interacted with you could really a palpable sense of pressure and expectation was weighing on their mental health and so it was really interesting to me to find out what's happening and whether young people are indeed reporting high levels of perfectionistic expectation for themselves a sense that others expect perfection of them and whether they expected the perfection of other people and so across around the 27 year period we collected as much data as you could on levels of perfectionism and we kind of mapped them out across time to see whether these characteristics are changing and what we're seeing is is a sharp rise in all three but what's probably most worrying is that the one characteristic of perfectionism that's the most damaging perhaps the one we really didn't want to see increase in was socially prescribed perfectionism and that's undertaken the the largest increase across time and i just to put that increase in in perspective around about nine percent of young people in 1989 reported levels of so social prescribed perfectionism that might arouse clinical concern that doubled to 18 percent in 2017 and, and and if we project those numbers forward almost one in three young people by 2050 will report clinically relevant levels of socially prescribed perfectionism so you can begin to see the sharp rise that's occurring in those in those perceptions and given the negative ramifications that that should that should worry us and what are those negative ramifications as I talked about, there's a lot of anxiety, there's a lot of negative emotionality, particularly shame, and shame can spill over into more pathological forms of mental health, so things like depression and, and clinical anxiety. Shame, shame, in, shame in particular is, as I, as I suggested, a signature of as a socially prescribed perfectionist, and, and shame is kind of a sense that I'm worthless. So something that I've done wrong, I haven't achieved a certain standard. I haven't got as many likes as I wanted. I haven't got as many followers. I haven't performed in this in this presentation. Whatever it might be that we've we've perceived we failed at, isn't just a failure of the task or the activity, but is an actual failure of the self. It's revealed to other people that we're in some way defective or flawed, and that's a major and significant hit to our sense of self-esteem. And if you string those experiences out on a day-to-day basis over months and years you can begin to see how socially prescribed perfection breeds a profound sense of helplessness and hopelessness and that's one of the reasons why it's so damaging to to our mental health and obviously i mean we've seen over the last few years or the last decade or so there's been a rise in concerns around mental health, especially in younger generations. Obviously, there's a lot of conversation as well around that. And in that being such a rise in our time online, but especially with the birth and then the kind of real popularity and cultural norm that now exists around social media. And and have you seen a link with this rise in perfectionism and especially this idea that other people expect us to have this kind of perfect sense of everything you know do you feel like there is a correlation with the rise in mental health as you said with that that link to depression and anxiety and and hopelessness and and how do you feel that social media plays into that i I think it's i think social media is a big a big part of the puzzle as to why we're seeing these increased increasing perceptions of others and the social environment more generally being excessively expectant and that others expect me to be perfect 
And there's many reasons for that. But but one of, one of the reasons that we can point to is actually was actually proposed over half a century ago now by a master clinician called Karen Horney. And, and she taught really persuasively about how really perfectionism sort of boils up from an inner conflict, she called it a neurotic conflict, but an inner conflict between an actual and idealized self. And this, this conflict comes from broader culture and a culture that teaches us that there's an ideal life, lifestyle, but whilst at the same time makes us feel miserable for not quite being able to attain it. And that it's that conflict that springs perfectionistic tendencies, a need and a desire to be perfect and project perfection onto other people. And I really think there's there's a lot to be said for that viewpoint in what's occurring today, because in the 1950s, consumerism was just taking off and these these cultural frames were beginning to take hold. But really, I mean, we're in a completely new culture, a new era, and social media has put those neurotic conflicts on a completely different level. And they've elevated social comparison and this idea that essentially we have an idea or an ideal of perfection that's projected to us 24-7 through our socials as something that's normal, that's something that's obtainable and desirable. And it's only really amplifying, in my mind anyway, that conflict between the ideal and actual self, that really we have these images of perfection uh, that we aspire to, but that we can't quite live up to. And as a consequence, we feel a lot of conflict and uh, negative emotions. And to cope with those and to try to tune them down, we adopt perfectionistic tendencies because it goes back to that cycle of self-defeat. If we're perfect or we project perfection, then people will value us. People will approve of us. We'll get we'll get likes, we'll get followers, whatever it might be within social media. And therefore, we'll feel better about ourselves. But that's the problem. If we're using social media to, to feel better about ourselves, to service a, a, a fracture in our self-esteem, then it's really the wrong way or, or the wrong reason to use social media. And I think this is perhaps one of the reasons why we're seeing more perfectionistic tendencies. How on earth do you change that? I mean, I guess that's, and it's a big question, but it's it's so tricky because it's become such a big part of the world today. And there was, there was one other point I wanted to bring in, which I, I think was really interesting. I think we're very quick to look at things like social media and I don't disagree. I think the way you use it is so incredibly important. But there was another point you brought in that you felt was playing a part in this, which I thought was very interesting, which was like the number of tests that children now go through while they're at school and this need that we now have to like kind of constantly quantify merit and that we're sort of publicly playing out this from such a young age. And you said that in big city high schools in the US, kids take 112 mandatory standards standardized tests between pre-kindergarten and the end of the 12th grade, which is just extraordinary. So we're kind of conditioning ourselves from such a young age to constantly compare ourselves to our peers, to be looking at things in pretty narrow, reductive terms in terms of, you know, who got an A in maths and who got a C. And I was very curious how that also plays into it, because I guess that starts to affect children at a, a younger age before you're possibly getting into that kind of age of social media. Yeah, it's definitely a contributing factor, particularly in the early years. Standardized testing is a way of measuring or ranking, I suppose, sifting, sorting, ranking young people into sets within schools, which can then be used to adjudicate the college that they are able to 
access or get into, which then determines, I suppose, their future market price. So everything in today's culture is measured. Everything is quantified. Sociologists have a bit of a wonky term called the quantified self to describe this phenomenon. But it's something that certainly exploded over recent years and social media has fed into it. But certainly at school, young people are tested, assessed and measured more than they ever have been before. And, and, and like you've suggested, that, that teaches young people they're only really worth something when they've achieved, when they've succeeded, uh, when they've scored a high grade, and and then the, and then they come to define themselves in the, the sort of really restrictive terms of of those grades and how they've performed, and and what we're really teaching young people is what's what Carl Rogers talked about in terms of his his idea of contingencies of self esteem. What we're really teaching young people is that their self esteem is contingent. You know, their worth, their value is contingent on these outcomes and how they perform and where they sit relative to others. And the only really antidote to that is, is uh, going back to Karen Horney. She talked about finding a true and authentic self, trying to rid ourselves of those contingencies that create anxieties, conflicts and stresses and that accepting ourselves for who we are, imperfections and all, is one of the greatest and most powerful ways to overcome some of those inner conflicts but the problem of course is that you're pushing against the tide because we live in a culture that pushes in completely the opposite direction yes i mean how how do you change that even you know obviously on a global scale that's that's huge overhauls to the kind of entire way in which the world works but on a personal level for people who are struggling with you know that sense of expectation on themselves perhaps on what other people expect of them and feeling kind of pretty as you said hopeless and defeated by that have you kind of found any interesting techniques and ways of which you can kind of overcome it on a personal level in order to exist in the world in the way that it's currently set up absolutely and there's i mean Whenever I talk about perfectionism, I talk about the, 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 the bleakness of the personality trait. And, and it is quite bleak. Some of the things that perfectionism uh, contributes to are, are negative. However, I think there's room for optimism. I think the very fact of just understanding that we, we feel the way we do because of the way culture is takes a lot of weight off our stresses and our anxieties because it teaches us that, that they're not only a function or they're not really a function of us or anything that we've done wrong but actually that there's a broader context to those feelings and that we operate in a society that actively creates them and is and is structured to actively create them you look at the you know the beauty industry or any sort of industry really they, they're kind of selling selling us products that can improve our lives but the de facto assumption is that we need to improve our lives that, that, that somehow we're incomplete in the first place so understanding first of all that we live in a culture that teaches us to feel miserable it can be really helpful in taking the weight off the personal responsibility for the stresses and strains that that we feel i would also say Secondly, that there are things we can do to manage perfectionistic tendencies. Uh, the first, I think, is really to focus or hone in, not necessarily on the outcomes of our performances, but the process, the learning, the growth, how much development we make when we engage in new tasks. I think that's really, really crucial because if we focus on the concept uh, growth, development, we, the outcomes will naturally come. 
because the learning process suggests that if we can continue to develop them, then performance will follow. But it does so without the self-worth contingency on the outcome itself, without the kind of existential threat that we feel if we don't achieve an A or whatever it might be. So I think that's really, really important. And I would suggest the second thing is uh, that I think is a really powerful antidote in this culture is, is self-compassion. I mean, it's really, really crucial for us to just go easy on ourselves sometimes when we slipped up, I, you know, and, I, and I'm, I'm just as guilty as anyone, you know, I make a mistake or I, I don't perform as well as I wanted to in a particular lecture or whatever it might be. You know, I'm immediately outside the theater going, how could you be so stupid? What happened there? Why didn't you say that properly or whatever, whatever, you know, you can ruminate and brood over the minutiae of, of, of what occurred. I think it's really important that we recognize when those intrusive thoughts are starting to creep in. And instead of reacting with that kind of self-castigation, actually rationalize, empathize. You know, how would you speak to a friend if they'd had the same experience? You know, you'd rationalize with them. You'd, you'd, you'd suggest to them that, you know, it was only one presentation or one exam. It's not the end of the world. You know, if you, you get your head down, keep learning, keep developing, you're going to be fine. You don't apply those same rules to ourselves. And I really think that self-compassion is is another way in which we can just start to silence that inner critic. Going easy on ourselves when things haven't gone well, I think is, is crucial. So, so those are the things that I think we can do in our own lives contextualizing as you said is also really nice as well and and almost just to feel that it's normal you know that Mm. whether we like it or not it's actually become as you said increasingly common to feel these levels of expectation and so again we shouldn't be hard on ourselves for being hard on ourselves but one of the other things you brought up which I thought was really interesting because it's something I have definitely found personally is the idea of purpose and that having something that feels greater and that you're more kind of passionate about than how we're performing or how we're appearing to others can be quite helpful as well of escaping the cycle. Yeah, I think purpose and autonomy uh, and finding a sense of our place in the world and and competence, really, a sense of self-esteem is what we're talking about, is so, so important to growth and well-being. And finding something that you're passionate about really really important but don't let that passion overcome or you know encompass your the whole of your identity don't make it all about who you are because that that leads to a a very rigid inflexible and as, as i talked about earlier a highly contingent form of engagement that ultimately leads to more unhappiness than happiness keep it harmonious keep our activities and purpose in balance with other important areas of our lives like our friendships our health our well-being sleep physical activity etc having a purpose and having a passion is really really important but keeping it in balance is also uh, i would suggest equally important one of the reasons why you would assume perfectionism would create higher performance outcomes. But actually, when we study perfectionism, we find it doesn't. One of the reasons for that is because they compromise areas of their life, which would otherwise lead to greater performance, things like rest, sleep, diet, etc. So purpose, meaning, really, really important. Finding something you're passionate about, hugely important to your well-being and keeping that passion in check, keeping that passion in balance uh, with other important areas of your life is really, really important. And have you also found that that actually embracing failure is incredibly important? Because I, I think it is something that I at least am noticing people talking about more and people kind of being more open about challenges and things that haven't gone well. But I guess learning that failure isn't a weakness. 
Yeah, we. I think we're doing a really good job. Well, I think the young, the younger generations are actually. I shouldn't say we. I'm not young anymore, unfortunately. But the younger generations that I'm seeing coming through my classroom really encouraging signs in terms of their willingness to open up and and show their authentic self and 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 not be afraid to seek out help and be vulnerable i think uh, brene brown talks about this really persuasively about the power of vulnerability and the courage and strength of vulnerability actually it takes real strength to accept we were wrong to accept we made a mistake or screwed up and it takes real uh, strength to push ourselves out there to make those mistakes in the first place you know it's actually the weakness is not trying i guess weakness is not accepting or being able to realize uh perhaps that we've screwed up or that we were wrong you see that a lot amongst politicians actually they, they do things wrong and they can't accept that they're wrong that's not strength that's weakness what strength is being acknowledging our flaws acknowledging where we can improve and just opening ourselves up uh, and being vulnerable vulnerability is strength and i think again i i see really encouraging signs actually among the younger generations that they're embracing that they're seeing that and uh, you know the body positivity movement and just feeling safe and able to show our imperfections and embrace them and celebrate them. And that's how you fight. That's how you fight this culture. You you take it on by celebrating ourselves for who we are, imperfections and all. And is that something you think needs to kind of continue to play out, I guess, on things like social media and platforms like that to continue to normalize it so that it does start to take that pressure off? Absolutely. I think we've got a long way to go. I'm not an avid user of, of social media, but uh, every time I flick through Instagram, you, you tend to find that there are still a lot of images of sort of idealized lives and lifestyles that that aren't realistic. And in many cases, actually, are manufactured, are calibrated to maximize likes and followers and, and, and all the rest of it. And so I, I think there is a long way to go, but I think we are also at the same time we're moving in in the right direction slowly and there's a there's a lot of room for optimism i think in terms of people being able to use social media because so look you know i guess i sound quite down on social media i'm really not like i, I think social media is is a fantastic tool uh, it's a wonderful way to bring people together particularly people who have interests that are quite niche or, or communities where they might not be able to find those individuals in the local area it's a wonderful wonderful tool uh, for social engagement and uh, bringing people together, but but there are underlying vulnerabilities that would make people perhaps uh, vulnerable to, to social media. One of them is perfectionism, and so the more that the, the people who have a perfectionistic tendency are able to see, you know, images of of reality, images of people slipping up, or or perhaps just feeling comfortable enough to show their true selves, their authentic selves, uh, the more you can begin to break down the um, harmfulness of that particular platform for those who have underlying vulnerabilities. I think we're moving in the direction. I think there's a long way to go, but but I think we should be optimistic. I like that. One of the questions I had as well, because then, and, you know, it's relevant for me, but I think for a lot of our listeners as well, um, who have small children or, or are thinking of being parents, I mean, I think at least I find the idea of raising a child in the kind of world today 
quite intimidating at times, almost one of those things, sometimes it's best not to think about it because it does feel like there is this kind of unbelievable pressure that, as we talked about with grades and things, does does start from actually a really, really, really early age. And then obviously thinking about how they start to interact with the world and, and with the internet and things like that. As a parent, I guess it feels like you've probably got quite a, a big role on a on a kind of individual basis to play in trying to encourage children to to think differently and to not compare themselves to their peers or or to other people that they that they don't know and I wondered if you if you'd come across anything interesting there or if there's anything that you'd learn about the role of of family and of you know I guess caregivers like teachers and things as well in in terms of kind of supporting children growing up in in what is undoubtedly now a kind of increasingly pressurized environment yeah sure i'm not a parent so so it's very difficult for me to give i guess an informed opinion here but i guess it would go back to what i was suggesting earlier about just understanding that those pressures are natural that everyone feels them and that they're not necessarily a reflection of anything that you've done wrong but they're a reflection of how society has made us feel. And that's the same for our parenting as it is for our friendship groups or our, our relationships in work, et cetera, et cetera. But I think the thing that I would like to point out with parenting that, that's really interesting is also, and it's linked to that, that it's difficult now. It is really difficult because like you suggested, there's social media that has these kind of expectations for the, you know, how we should parent. But there's also societal expectations and economic pressures that are unprecedented and that are new and that other parents from other generations haven't really felt. And if you look at the US in particular, but it's happening here in the UK, we're now finding that families, according to the OECD anyway, are net downwardly mobile. That's to say that it isn't clear that children will have a better material life than their parents moving into the future. And of course, that's terrifying for parents to see that actually without pushing and high expectations and, you know, an emphasis on work ethic and doing well in school and all the rest of it, that that actually their, their kids might fall behind. And actually, there is a very good chance that they will do when they take a look around them and see what's happening. So there's there's not just social media pressures. There's also economic pressures in the wider social environment that are really p- pushing on parents to, to engage in behaviours that perhaps they don't necessarily want to, but they feel like they have to. And so I, I, I would just agree, it's a really difficult time to bring up kids. There's no right or wrong answer to this. And, and really, I would suggest that taking the pressure off and not falling into the trap of trying to live up to expectations of what you feel is a sort of idealized parent is, is really important and, and parenting in the way that you're most comfortable with that you know aligns with your values I think is is, is crucial but just to say it, it's really it's really not easy at the moment. It's it's definitely something I find absolutely fascinating. It's, I mean, we're so new into into ex- our experience. There are little ones about one now, so so very very early into it, and obviously haven't even got to to the idea of school yet. But it's something I'm I'm really aware of, and I feel like there's already so many different responsibilities and and you know mum guilt and all the rest of it to deal with. And so throwing that into the mix as well is quite interesting. I just wondered whether, for example, you see any differences in the genders um, when it comes to these traits 
what's really interesting is we don't. The levels of perfectionism, and, and this is a massive study that we did, around 40, 41, 42,000 uh, young people uh, in our sample. And, and there is no real difference across any of the any of the strands of perfectionism on, on, on gender, which suggests, interestingly, that, that males and females report comparable levels. And so this is something that we would say is quite invariant across across gender. And I don't know whether we were surprised by that, but it was certainly something that we we might have expected to see some differences, but didn't. Yeah, I think that is interesting. I don't know what I expected you to say, but it's possibly one of those things that the girls and women are maybe sometimes more vocal about. And so I wondered if it affected them more, but it's interesting to hear that that they don't. And the other thing I wondered is, is it nurture? Is it nature when it comes to these sorts of traits? Like, are you born with a predisposition to these kind of perfectionist traits or is it something that you tend to acquire possibly from the environment around you? So the answer is it's a bit of both. What we know about perfectionism is around, well, just under half of the variability, that's to say the individual differences in levels of perfectionism between people is, is herited, that's to say it's genetic, um, which, which leaves more than half of the individual differences, differences between people to be explained by social factors. So it's likely that this is a little bit of the two. And Brenny Brown has a really nice, nice quote, which I think sums up where I am on this too. Perfectionism and genetics load the gun but culture and society pulls a trigger. And so if you have an underlying disposition towards perfectionistic tendencies and you're raised in a culture that amplifies and emphasizes those tendencies, then really it's going to be very problematic for you to escape those pressures because of that genetic predisposition. And so I would, I would suggest it's a bit of both, but we are all vulnerable at some level or another and we all sit somewhere along the spectrum of perfectionism even if most of us aren't at the clinical end at the moment anyway our data suggests that a lot of us are trending higher it's just fascinating to see kind of how pervasive this is and it's it's well you talked about it as well is that we often like see it as our greatest flaw you know there's that interview question where it's like what's your biggest weakness oh i'm a perfectionist and it's kind of like a good flaw to have and actually you know actually when you get under the skin of it it, it's not a good flaw to have at all and I I guess I wanted just to wrap up and just to kind of clarify it a bit which is that because I think it is really it's a really important thing because I think sometimes and I know I see it myself when I kind of feel those tendencies to like push yourself beyond what sort of reasonable of yourself is is you feel like you'll be more successful. And and that isn't true. You don't see a strong correlation. In fact, it's the opposite between the perfectionist tendencies and success. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think what's really interesting is we know from studies that perfectionists put in so much effort, yeah. so much effort, because it's really important for them to succeed for their sense of self-esteem. When your self-esteem's on the line, you will put everything in to try to achieve it. And when you think about the amount of effort that perfectionists expend, it's really baffling that when you look at the data, there's no relationship between perfectionism and performance, or if there is a relationship, it's really small. Now, we think there are two reasons for this. The first reason is that, goes back to what I was saying earlier, perfectionists work so hard that they sort of go above and beyond. So they go to the threshold of 
uh, peak effort expenditure and then further. So essentially what they're, what they're into here is a zone of depreciating and then inverse returns to any additional effort because they're compromising areas of their life that are really important. Sleep, physical activity, interactions with important others that are close to them. That's the first, first thing we think is going on. The second is something that seems paradoxical, but when you actually break it down, it actually makes a lot of sense. If you put perfectionists in challenging situations, let's say you, you tell them, here's a goal, and that we think you should be able to meet this goal based on your abilities. And then you get them to engage in a task to reach that goal. And then you tell them at the end that they failed. You basically, no matter how well they did, you said you failed. You didn't meet the goal. Now, what's really interesting is on the first attempt that perfectionists run, they will put everything forward to try and meet that goal. They will give their all and then they don't reach it. If you tell them to do it again, what we see is that their effort completely drops off a cliff. They don't try on the second attempt. Now, why is that? Well, the reason is, of course, is they put everything forward in the first attempt. They failed. And that is so embarrassing. The shame that they feel from that failure, putting everything forward and still failing means that they'll do everything they can to avoid feeling those feelings the next time they attempt. And so what they do is to try and save face, they withdraw effort because you can't fail at something that you didn't try. And so the paradox of perfectionism is, particularly in challenging situations, we tend to see perfectionists withhold their effort as a kind of defense mechanism to any shame and guilt and embarrassment that they might feel if they happen to fail at it. And so what you can see among perfectionists, of course, is that breeds, particularly in a 21st century economy where there's a creativity risk, pushing ourselves into uncomfortable situations is really important for innovation. Well, if you put a perfectionist in that particular scenario, they're going to really struggle because there's so many unknowns. There's so many opportunities to fail and slip up. And so they tend to withhold effort to try to save face. So that's one of the reasons why perfection is such a paradox. On the one hand, it's got all this effort that's expended towards goals. But then on the other, we tend to find that they withhold that effort in challenges, situations, uh, particularly when things don't go well. Yeah, I think that the point about trying is very, I think, is fascinating that the fear of trying in case you mess up. Um, yeah, it's, it feels incredibly relevant, actually, and um, such an important thing to, to point out. And as I said, it's just such an interesting topic because I think it, you know, touches us all at different points in our lives. As you said, even if it's not on the clinical scale, it's still incredibly relevant, really, for for everyone. And I think there's there's a lot to think about here in terms of ensuring that your self-esteem, you know, is defined not from your achievements um, and so on and so forth. And um, the idea of embracing vulnerability and the failure, you know, because failure is so natural. No, you know, no one's good at everything. It's impossible to be good at everything. But I think so often we seem to somehow completely forget that. We think that everyone is, is better at everything than we are. So really, really appreciate you sharing your time today. As I said, Thomas's TED Talk on this is so interesting. So I'll pop the link in the show notes below. If anyone wants to listen about failure, the um, How to Fail podcast is really brilliant as well. At getting people who you possibly admire or who've done interesting things and have had interesting careers and they're talking about all the things they've messed up, which we've all done so many times. So it's a, it's a really good lesson um, if you're trying to embrace the reality of failure. And otherwise, Thomas, thank you so much for your time today. It's absolutely brilliant and 
really, really appreciate you shedding some light on this for us. No worries. It's been a, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. And we'll be back again next Tuesday. Have a lovely week, everyone. Bye.